Welcome to another episode of the Black and Empowered Podcast. Today we have a phenomenal episode. If you've ever wondered where to begin or how to navigate the process of choosing and applying to PhD programs, you are in for a treat. We have Dr. Mesker, who is joined by Ashanti Brown and Dominique LeBerry, who are both graduate students. Together, they're all going to dive into the world of graduate school, specifically focusing on tips and insights for pursuing your dream clinical psychology PhD programs, from funding to mentorship to exactly what you could be doing after you graduate with your bachelor's degree to make you more competitive. So by the end of this episode, you'll gain some newfound clarity and invaluable knowledge. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. So I'm um, currently at Georgia State, and I'll do more of an introduction here, but just in terms of the why, I'm teaching a community psychology class. Um, I'm faculty in the clinical community program, so a lot of the conversations that we have throughout class are to talk about the ways in which we can apply the research, the theories that we're learning to the work that we're doing as community psychologists as well as clinical psychologists. Um, I have office hours twice a week and very quickly in the semester did my office hours fill up with individual appointments. And many of the questions were the same. Much of the advice that I was giving was the same. Much of the needs that you all had as students were the same. And there are a few of you here who reached out to me via email. So really just in an attempt to share resources, share experiences, um, hear from two current grad students about their processes, as well as my perspective as faculty who recruits graduate students. We wanted to get you all together to provide that um, we'll call today informal mentoring. And we're going to talk about ways for you to find and utilize more formal mentoring as well as research opportunities and different experiences that you do need as an undergrad to prepare for grad school in clinical psych. So we are going to provide some background information in terms of differences in types of programs or the work that you can do as a result of your degrees. But again, our focus is going to be on clinical psychology and what you can do to prepare for graduate school. So if you're already a graduate student, this might not be relevant for you. If you're not wanting to go to graduate school, this might not be relevant for you. Uh, if you know you want to go to grad school and you're debating on what type of program you want to go into, I do think that this would be relevant. And certainly if you're sure that you want to go into clinical psych. So we have two hours here this evening. We have structured it in a way where we're gonna provide just background information that everybody needs. So this is just standard information um, on. First, I'm gonna start with some ground rules, but then we're gonna go through the background information on who we are, what you need to know about clinical psychology specifically, uh, what type of experiences you can start getting in undergrad as well as in your post-bac um, years. The different paths that you might take to go to graduate school. So I just talked about a post-bac. Some of you might not even know what a post-bac is. So we'll talk about the different ways that you can get to graduate school. 
as well as how you actually apply for grad school. Um, I think Dominique's going to start talking about that and then funding your graduate education. So some grad programs come with funding, um, some do not. So we're going to talk about those different um, options and opportunities that exist. And then at the end, depending on how many people come, so I do think that there is a benefit from hearing each other's questions and experiences. So depending on how many we end with at the end of our formal presentation, we'll either stay here in the larger group um, to facilitate question and answer, or we'll go into breakout rooms to allow you to talk to Dominique, who will introduce herself shortly, but she's at UGA, and Ashanti, who's a grad student at Georgia State University. So, enthralled. I just did mine a little bit. Uh, what else will I say? I came to Georgia State as an undergrad. I, in my sophomore year, changed from uh, biology and pre-med and English because I wanted to be a journal editor for some reason to just psychology. Um, and in my sophomore year, realized very quickly that I was already behind in research experiences. So I joined the McNair program, which is a pipeline program designed for marginalized and first-generation students to really get the resources, the advice, and the mentorship, similar to what we're starting today, uh, really to facilitate the process to graduate school. Um, so my early foundation in clinical psych was through my first research opportunity that I had in the summer of my sophomore year. Um, and currently I'm on faculty at Georgia State, which doesn't have a McNair program, um, but my McNair, my McNair director did just come back to Georgia State. So we are thinking about um, submitting a grant to bring it back, but there is the Office of TRIO, which are student support services that I think is an excellent resource for you guys as students to receive some of this mentorship and these resources that we'll be talking about. Um, yes. Devontae, yeah, we don't have it anymore, but we do still have TRIO. That's T-R-I-O. Um, those services do still exist. Ms. Dominique, would you like to... Introduce yourself, tell people what program you're in, your experiences currently, and talk briefly about applying to grad school. Yeah, for sure. So, hi everyone, I'm Dominique Laberry, and I'm a fourth year student at University of Georgia. Um, similar to Aisha, I did my undergrad at Georgia State, so I'm a Panther at heart for always and ever. Um, I had a similar experience in that I learned that I needed research experience very late in my undergrad time. I basically was in a class with Dr. Wireman and she was like, girly, you need research if you wanna to go to grad school. And I was like, I had no idea. I thought I just needed good grades. Um, so I didn't really learn or get a lot of that mentoring as an undergrad, which I has really influenced my research and my um, service here at UGA. I do a lot of mentoring, a lot of DEI programs, just really passionate about kind of demystifying that hidden curriculum, you know, that we don't get much information on. Um, and Aisha mentioned a thing called a post-bac. I did a lot of that, and that's where I learned that I didn't want to do clinical. I want to do developmental, so I can talk about that a little bit later on if y'all like. Um, and I think that's everything. So, yeah, that was all. Okay, Ashanti, you go. 
Yeah, that was great, Dominique. Uh, thank y'all for showing up tonight. I'm really glad to see y'all. Um, as Dominique mentioned, I'm Ashanti. I am a second year in the clinical community program at Georgia State here. I also am a uh, Georgia State Panther at heart. I went to Georgia State for my undergrad, graduated 2019. Um, so like Dominique, I had no idea what grad school really was. It really wasn't on the table for me either. Um, Kind of like at the last minute, re realized I did not have any research experience whatsoever. Um, so I, I too did a post back um, and realized this is what I wanted to lean more towards. Um, so clinical community work is really what I am passionate about. And I'm also just with this, I understood that there was so much power in reaching back and helping others who, like me, were, did not know anything about any of this. So. For one, like congratulate yourself for even taking this step to applying and, and having some intention behind, you know, what you have an idea of what you want to do. So um, things like these, these mentorship uh, workshops are really beneficial and you, you will really, um, even if it's just a little nugget, um, small things that I never had when I was an undergrad. So, but yeah. Thank you, ladies, for your introductions. Um, so what I will say about both of them is that they are successful at grad as graduate students. So when I say successful, I mean they're successful at managing their multiple roles. So we're going to talk about the different types of programs and the different types of training that you're going to receive. Both of them are in the type of program that emphasize both research and uh, well, Ashanti especially is emphasizing both research and clinical work. Um, so that in terms of having to balance that with the coursework that you're doing, the practicum that you're doing, the assessments that you're doing, the therapy that you're doing, right? Um, the research that you're doing independently, it all is a matter of managing multiple roles. That I think is, you know, in addition to what we already talked about in terms of you're going to have to research, right? You're also going to be very busy and certainly when you are applying for graduate school, that's something that we look at as faculty. So what sorts of different opportunity has this applicant um, been involved in and how have they shown their ability to manage those multiple roles? So I want to give some time for us to just introduce ourselves or for you to introduce yourselves. Use the chat, feel free to jump off mute. I see some of you already have your cameras on, which is awesome. Just let us know who you are, where you're coming from. And if you, listen, no pressure on that middle box, right? Um, but if you know your plans for after graduation, you can talk about those and then any questions that you're bringing to today. We might not answer them, but we'll tell you that they're coming. start. Um, I'm Ellie. I attended Emory University. I graduated just this past May and I'm doing a post doc with the Grady Trauma Project, which is a psychology, a clinical psych lab with the Emory School of Medicine. So that is my current plan <laughs> as I have graduated. And then um, I'm hoping to apply to clinical psych grad school in the 2024 cycle to do developmental psychopathology and child clinical work. And then uh, questions I'm bringing to today, I was really curious about how to best approach reaching out to mentors and getting in touch with programs that um, 
I found on the internet and kind of introducing myself. And then also writing of a personal statement. That's another yeah. thing I would love advice on. Both of those are so important. And both of those, like Dominique just talked about a hidden curriculum, both of those have standard components that are necessary um, and that are most effective. So we will definitely touch on those for you and keep that in mind. Just wants to introduce themselves. Thank you, Elle. I'll go next. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Bianca. Um, I attended Florida International University. I graduated and now I have a postdoc position at Yale University um, working in the human nature lab. Um, and so that's currently like Ellie, you know, plans after graduation, getting experience. Um, and I would like to go into clinical psychology, but um, I'm still kind of, um, I guess, putting together my research interests to be able to know how to reach out to the mentors that I want to work with. Um, and so that's one of my questions for today is how um, can we narrow down our research interests to see what mentors match or how can I start conversations to find programs that um, align with my research interest? Great. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. So you guys are at similar stages. Um, in terms of placement, but you're at different stages in terms of the types of questions you're asking. So how do I even identify my research interests is the first step. And then once I've identified that, how do I locate people who are doing similar work yeah. and then reach out to them? Um, so two very good questions, developmentally different. And I do think that, yeah, we're gonna talk about that process um, from, right, okay, now I know I need to go to grad school. How do I start? finding research or mentors who do similar research and reaching out to them. Uh, one, to get those experiences, but two, right, to see if they're even taking students, if I can start the application process with them. Hey, do you want me to go introduce myself again, Professor, since you already know me, do you want me to? You can for the others in here, yes. Uh, uh, my name is Devontae Lovett. I'm a Marine Corps veteran. I'm currently a senior at Georgia State University. Right now, I plan on going to, uh, yeah, plan on getting my master's in social work, and then I want to get a side degree and be a, a therapist. Perfect. And I didn't know what a postback is. I didn't know about research until I started my class with a professor this semester. <laughs> yes, awesome. Navy vet, social work, and you said what, Sidey? Yeah, Marine Corps vet. And your Sidey. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Perfect. Did you have any specific questions for today? Oh, just learning about the post back. Okay. And, Perfect. Uh, just, you know, the process of getting to grad school. Perfect. We got you. Um, good to have you here, Soraya. Okay. You guys feel free to continue introducing yourselves in the chat especially uh if you have any other specific questions drop them in that sign in link as well but you can leave them in the chat and we'll be able to facilitate that so the first part of what we want to talk about is what is clinical psychology so we're going to start by just giving an overview over clinical psych we're going to talk about those different mental health professions that are similar and that we often do collaborate with in terms of interdisciplinary research as well as providing comprehensive clinical care. 
We'll talk about the specific roles of psychologists and the types of um, opportunities for employment for psychologists. So where can you get a job and work with a degree uh, as a psychologist? So there are different types of training models that you can um, be trained under within your graduate program. So when you start to look at graduate programs, one of the first things that they'll say is the type of training that they provide. This is going to provide a lot of insight for you early on um, to the degree with which you know your interests. So, for example, if you know that you want to do both research and clinical work, and when I say do, that is to conduct clinical research, so to disseminate surveys, to uh, run laboratory experience, to do focus groups and collect qualitative data. That is the type of training that is provided in a scientist practitioner model. So they emphasize collecting data, analyzing data, and practicing with clinical populations. On the flip side of that, and very similar, is you can see all these, they feel the same, they look very similar. The practitioner scholar model, they flip it. The practitioner in this case is focusing on practice. And as a scholar, they are focusing on consuming research rather than producing that research. So someone who's getting training as a scientist practitioner, they are still likely getting a clinical psychology PhD, right? But you're gonna see that some programs emphasize practitioner scholar models. So that is to say that uh, their comps project, for example, might be to summarize the literature rather than, than developing their own research project. A clinical scientist is, again, very similar. Uh, however, they are practicing research or practicing clinical science and psychology and conducting research. It's in the opposite direction of the first in that they are practicing more. And the and the research is the afterthought. I say afterthought, but it's not really an afterthought. It's just less emphasized in your training. So scientist, practitioner, research, then practice, practitioner, scholar, practice, consuming research, clinical scientist, practice, conducting as well. And again, this is with getting a clinical psychology PhD. The different types of specialties or concentrations that exist within clinical psychology are child or adolescent psychology, that's me, adult psychology. This is looking at, um, when we talk about clinical, that's to say that you have clinically significant um, complications or deficits. So you think about the DSM-5, right? Clinical health psychology. So health is being concerned with physical and behavioral health outcomes. So these are things like uh, you could do research on chronic pain management, for example, sickle cell disease, for example, HIV, for example. Some programs or some um, specialties or concentrations are a combination of the two. So clinical child and health. So this is to say pediatric pain, for example, or pediatric, or I'm sorry, or clinical community psychology, which is a subset that we have at Georgia State University. Um, University of South Carolina, uh, 
there are a few programs across the nation that have that joint clinical and community psychology emphasis. And then neuropsychology is a different subset. And again, they can have child, adult, or lifespan. So what do clinical psychologists do? If I'm getting a degree in clinical psychology, what can I do with that degree? Psychodiagnostic testing, that is to say that you're diagnosing for, again, those DSM-related disorders. Psycho is to think about psychopathology, so how are you deviating from the norm? Psychoeducational evaluations are those that are related to your educational outcomes and performance. Those are uh, typically comprehensive in that we do talk about, right, your social and your behavioral background uh, and that it does impact the way that you're functioning in school. But typically, those psychoeducational evaluations are school-related. And then neuropsych assessments, those are related to uh, brains and behavior. So these are things like ADHD assessments. You can do neuropsych evals if you have concerns about developmental delays or disabilities as well. Uh, neuropsych, you could do like a TBI examination or assessment as well. In addition to doing assessments and doing diagnosis, you can also provide therapy. So that is to say that you are doing clinical interventions. Uh, with PhDs, they're typically evidence-based in that they have some sort of research backing. These, again, focus either on adults, children, or you can do child and family, or you can just do family therapy, like multi-systemic therapy, where you're thinking about the different systems within a family that impact youth development or family functioning. You can also do group counseling or group therapy. So group therapy is where um, the group of people are all dealing with the same clinical outcomes, but they all come from different backgrounds. They're not in the same family, for example. And then couples therapy, of course, these are people in a relationship. So one therapist can work with a couple together. And in some cases, they're referred out for individual therapy. Ellie, yes. I always thought like couple therapy or family therapy was like counseling psychology and not clinical psychology. So now I'm confused about the difference between clinical psychology and counseling psychology. That's a really good question. So we're going to get to that. Uh, what I will say is that Clinical and counseling, the main difference is, again, this clinically significant deficit that is happening. So if you are going to couples counseling and you are just talking about, right, better communication, building trust, um, attachment styles, right? These are different topics that can come into play. Managing stress, for example. Clinically, you're dealing with typically, right, um, something that can lead to, let's say, for example, PTSD, or that's associated with a clinical outcome. So if they have some sort of um, domestic violence involved, if there is, um, if one of the partner is, is suffering from depression or eating disorders, right, or some clinical outcome, then you are able to, as a clinical psychologist, um, provide deeper, um, let me not say deeper, uh, more evidence-based practices and those that focus on those clinical outcomes. That's a really good question. So yeah, the difference between counseling and clinical is um, uh, just a matter of severity in most cases, but the, the types of problems, the types of issues, the types of skills even that we talk about are often very similar.
So as a psychologist, as a clinical psychologist, you can also get employment as a clinical researcher. So that research can happen, of course, at university settings like you, you currently see, but those that research also happens in the industry. It also happens in VA centers. It can also happen at community-based organizations that value collecting evidence on the treatments that they're providing. So you can not be in an educational setting, not be providing treatment or therapy of your own, but only conducting clinical research, and that's a different type of role of a clinical psychologist. Consultation is to provide professional advice. You can do professional auditing. Um, consultation is where you can do evaluations and provide support around improving services, improving therapy, improving efficacy, or your confidence in your ability to be a psychologist. Um, you also can do consultation for um, organizations around diversity and inclusion. You can do consultations around, um, for example, you can go into a school setting and do an evaluation of um, their school-based services as a clinical psychologist. And education, right? So those are things like training, like teaching, um, like providing workshops as well, continuing education. So training and teaching that can happen to students like this. You can do that with other psychologists. You can do that with other professionals. So where can you work? I've already previewed uh, many of these. So mental health hospitals, community centers, um, hospitals, medical clinics, group and private practices, government agencies. I talked about the VA. Of course, you know that you can be at a college. Um, correctional facilities, so there are psychologists that work within law enforcement agencies that work at juvenile justice organizations, for example, and you can provide both clinical care consultations, all of those, so research, right, all of those can take place in these different types of settings. So clinical psychologists also can provide clinical services in school settings, in addition to school psychologists. Someone just asked about counseling site. Um, so this is to talk about the different types of mental health graduate programs. So we're talking about clinical psychology, right? Um, there are other types of programs. So the first subset are those clinically focused degrees. So things like social work, where you are concerned with um, not only right their mental health, but also those social phenomenon, those social con or those social problems that people are often also navigating. Um, and as it pertains to psychology, right, we do work with social workers in terms of providing case management, helping clients find existing services um, and resources as well. So social workers are um, often community-based and they do, again, focus on providing that social support that's needed. And MSW, so that's a master's of social work is what that degree would be. School psychologists, you can get a terminal master's, which just means um, standalone, or you can get it along the way to your PhD. Um, school psychologist just means that um, you are practicing in school-based settings. So you can still do evaluations, consultations, therapy, um, but that is taking place in school-based settings. So what I typically say is if you're not sure 
broader is better. So you can do clinical, but if you are sure you want to work with school age kids in school based settings, then you can do school psychology. If all of your questions are related, if research questions are related to educational outcomes, right? School psychology might be for you. You can also be a MFT or a LPC. So that is a licensed professional counselor or a marriage and family therapist. So again, a licensed counselor is focused on one, practice over research and two, those um, kind of more common stressors, problems and phenomenon other than the clinically significant ones, right? So that is to say someone can be struggling with worries or someone can meet diagnoses for anxiety, right? A doctorate in psychology. So we're talking about a PhD, but they also have PsyD programs that are more applied. And when I say applied, they're more clinical focused. Research focused degrees exist. So you can get a master's degree in psychology and just conduct research in that regard. You can get a master's degree in or a PhD in counseling psychology. This is, these are research related. School psychology as well. The medical degree is, oh no, Devante, you said PsyD. No one in here said they wanted to be an MD. I have a current undergrad at UGA, Darren. Okay. So an MD is um, a medical degree. So it's, it's very similar to clinical psychology. However, if you have this MD, you're also allowed to prescribe medication for those clinically significant problems. So they do, uh, right, I said I was going to be a pediatrician, I said, nah, right? So they also have to learn about medicine, biology, neuroscience as well to really be able to um, take that additional step of prescribing medication. What types of experience do you need? So we just talked about, uh, I think I was in my sophomore year, so talking to y'all, yeah, I feel like I was a little early and fortunate. Um, but as an undergrad, right, there's always this moment where you realize that, wait, <laughs> if I want to go to the next step, I do need to already be doing something, right? That's kind of when, um, in other fields, people say, right, you want me to get my first job, but I have to have experience to get that, right? This is how you get experience to get that. Um, oftentimes you do it as a lab assistant. So you can reach out to uh, faculty at your universities of, that you attend. Now you could probably do it virtually, um, but it is important to reach out and to make sure that they're conducting research that either you know for a fact you're interested in or you're just trying to decide whether or not that's research you wanna pursue. So it should be related in some way. Um, and an independent project. So that is something that you can do as a honors student, you can do that if you are part of a summer research program. You can do that if you've been established in a in a lab and you've gotten research experience and you're, um, you know, helping to collect and comb through and clean data and you just come up with a research question. Oftentimes, my lab in particular, many labs have ways of formally proposing projects, asking research questions, and then starting your own independent program of research. So we talked a lot about postback. So what's a postback? So you guys are right now getting your bachelor's degree. Postback just means it's after that happens. It's before you get into a graduate program. Um, it's typically designed for those students who need either their first research experience, additional research experience, or those right who are just trying to decide what type of research do I want to do. Um, most postbacks are this first bullet point. Most postbacks are, are research based. 
if you're getting a clinical post back, you're oftentimes um, shadowing, you're oftentimes needing to go through additional training that will allow you to get that clinical post back. But those opportunities, while rare, do exist. So it's important to, again, think about the type of training that you're going to want in graduate school and then get that early experience to allow you to, to one, make it to graduate school, but also to succeed while in graduate school. So a lot of these experiences are, are to right? Uh, graduate school is a tedious process. It's a long process. It's a hard process. So you want to, and you commit, right, to five years of being poor and working hard, right? So post back allows you to, you know, just dip your toe in the water to see if you even want to do this, if you want to commit. And it allows us as faculty to see what sorts of training, what sorts of experience, what sorts of graduate student are you going to be? So those are really important experiences for you guys to get. So what types of postbacks can I get? Um, the most common, I probably should have put volunteer first, but no, um, you know, it just depends on where you are. You can get paid postback um, uh, research positions. Let me not say that. The way that you find those, you can go to APA. Um, you can sign up on different listservs. They do periodically send postback opportunities. Um, Trio for certain, I do know, has listservs that they create. Volunteering is, oh, let me not say it's um, easier to do because you often do similar roles. Volunteer experiences are easier to find is what I'll say. So oftentimes if you can write a strong letter of interest, if you can show, you know, a writing sample and you complete a research application, you can get volunteer research experience in a lab. Uh, if you want to get your, your standalone master's, you can go into a terminal master's program. What I'll say is that, uh, so typically I do this for marginalized students and I, you know, terminal master's programs often don't come with funding. So it is a privilege to be able to say, okay, I'm going to spend a couple, I say a couple, several more thousand dollars to get this additional degree in these additional programs. Um, but there are some that exist as standalone. Uh, and again, right, this other point about these clinical positions, like I said, they are limited, but they do exist. And it's just a matter of, right, Google searching, utilizing these listservs and these other organizations. So why do you need a post back? Uh, let me see which of you guys I have talked to. Oh, yes. Good one. Twitter. Academic Twitter. Yeah. I'm going to let the, <laughs> the grad students talk to y'all about this. Because, um, yeah, I'm just not getting hit to it and I still don't know how to use it. But, yeah, Twitter is a great place to identify um, postback opportunities. <laughs> On Twitter um, or academic Twitter, it's basically the same thing. It's just Twitter, but you're looking up tags for like academic positions, postbacks, research. If there's a specific area of research that you know you have an interest in, you can type that in, see what comes up. Um, and I have found various um, postback positions, folks who are starting up their lab. So a very good friend of mine actually just got a, a faculty position and is starting up her lab and she's posted on Twitter like I'm looking for grad students for the next cycle. So it's a good place to just kind of be aware of and search periodically. Um, you can also just like start following those academic scholars that maybe you, you know, you really like. I have a lot of academic crushes that I'm out here following and that's how I learn about, okay, this person who does this research that I'm interested in is looking for someone who's in this similar area to be a 
lab coordinator to be a research assistant, um, also looking for people to collaborate with. If you're currently in a lab, um, I think it's a cool place to really meet other scholars and post and people will post like, oh, this conference is coming up. I'm looking for someone who to collaborate on a symposium on the similar thing. And that might be your position if you're already a postdoc or in a lab to kind of reach out and connect your lab with their labs and start that collaboration and just starting to get your name recognized so that when it's time for you to be in the grad um, application cycle, people can be like, oh, Ellie, I've seen this name before in association to this person. It kind of rings a bell. Um, and also like, this is something that I've kind of have learned when you're out on the application cycle. Sometimes people will look you up on Twitter just to know a little bit about you. If you already have that academic background growing on Twitter in a social media presence, I think it's helpful. If you don't have it, I don't think it will hurt either way. But if you do have it, I think it's it just like makes you stand out a little bit more. And I will say just to add on to that while we're on the Twitter thing, uh, well, social media in general, I do think there's so much power in it. Um, and I think it's also a um there's a way to utilize it in a way that um will make you sell yourself so where there are like academic we call them academics um people that have separate twitters you know not from your personal ones so you know one that you're not really kicking in on all the time you know retweeting everything that really wouldn't be on your academic side however there's also you know some people that keep one twitter but they're very delicate and intentional about what they tweet what they like repost so what i will say is while it is i believe um a great benefit there is a way to utilize it and we can kind of talk about that if we have some time um, but i do think that people seeing your online presence is another way for them to remember you easily versus you just being on paper, like on a CV. Um, I've actually um, appreciated those students who I've seen. They will put like their Twitter in their um, signature. If they are academic Twitter, and you're able to see, they'll put like, oh, here's a publication or a presentation. So it's like an informal um, kind of paper trail or CV that they have online. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to transition now. Okay. So, yeah, a lot of y'all's questions I saw are pertaining to applying, which is, you know, I'm pretty sure the. The purpose of you coming tonight, um, and Dominique and I have a good amount of experience with applying and. Of course, we're here, so, you know, some good luck with that as well. So I do want to be intentional about our time. Um, talking about that. Um, first up, we'll talk about research um, programs. So, as I should mention before, a good number of clinical programs have three different training models. So, the scientist practitioner. Oh my gosh! Yes, you have it, Ellie. Yes, wonderful book. Um, you just held up that one. I have the later or the earlier one. This is the year before. I do not utilize it at all. Um, how about this? Whoever guesses my favorite color, I'll ship it to you for free. Um. It's probably like two highlighted pages in there. That's it. But oh, using that. Um, oh my God, Soraya, are you cheating? <laughs> yes, it's lavender, but you're close. Yeah, we'll just Yay! say. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, she said the glasses. Okay, great guess. So yeah, I will make sure to. Um, I will send you my stuff. Um, and I'll 
get your your address. But um, that was a really great uh, resource for me during applying because what it does in that specific book, 65%, I will say, yeah, 65 to 70% of the labor that you're going to do looking up programs is in that book. So it will share with you, you know, what are programs looking for? What are the attrition rates? You know, how, how many people are coming to the program? Uh, what is the average uh, GRE score, GPA? What's the training model? How many students do they, have, do they um, accept per year? All of the, well, you know, like, what are they specifically known for? Like diversity or specific research interests? It is a lifesaver because it saves you a good load of the work that you will be doing when you start the process. Another thing that is really important about these programs is, is fit. Um, and that can mean a number of things, uh, fit for mentorship and fit for programs. So as we mentioned earlier, there's three different, you know, primary types of models. But another thing that's important is what, you know, look at what these programs are valuing. So you know yourself more than anyone else. Um, what do you value? What do you want from the program? Do you want to make sure that you know, diversity or inclusion is highlighted. What what are programs priding themselves on? Those are some things that you want to be very, very intentional about. Um, another really big thing is, is mentorship fit. So regardless if you have research interests that align or are parallel with this mentor, you do want to see if you, you two mesh. So for example, my, well, clearly my mentor here is Dr. Aisha here. Um, not only do our research interests align, but we are pretty similar as far as like person personality wise. So again, these programs are long haul. They're five to six years um, on average. Um, if you take longer, that's, you know, that's not unnormal, but five to six years on average. And one thing that you really want to be mindful of is can you last with this person for five to six years? Um, and I think one of those things that you will note is you will kind of come across that as interview days come up. When you get an interview, you'll kind of fill it out. Um, so if, you know, if you, if this person really doesn't mesh with you. And then I think another important thing is APA accreditation. Most of these programs inside this book will all be APA accredited. Um, however, you do wanna be mindful and up to date on when are they getting their accreditation and when is it expiring? Um, if there's a program that is admitting you or interviewing you, and you see that it um, it expires 2024, you want to ask when is the next cycle for you all to get accredited? Um, yes, Dominique, great point. Um, interview days, when you get an interview, because you're with this person a long time, ask them questions as well. You know, what is your mentorship style or how do you respond to um, adversity when something goes wrong with, something in the program, you know, it can be literally anything you, you um, are wondering, you want to ask them questions as well, because it is a reciprocal relationship. You are learning from them, but they're also learning from your expertise as well. GRE, I feel like you all may get lucky with this. I have been seeing some programs, I said May, so emphasis on May. Um, I've seen some programs drop the GRE. I got lucky, I was uh, coming in during a COVID year, so the GRE was not required anymore. However, I am seeing programs do away with it um, just for a number of reasons. Um, however, an important thing I would say 
when you find those programs, go ahead and take the initiative to see if they require the GRE. I, you know, it is stress inducing um, if you have to take it. So it is another test, like if you're not good with tests or even if, you know, it's just a test. Um, but some programs do look at that and I can, I can understand how that would be, you know, a hindrance to some people. Um, with that, I, I will say go ahead and see if they are offering uh, GRE waivers. Um, also, if um, if they're requiring the GRE, ask them, you know, when is um, typically the, the, the scores? Because I asked about scores and I was very curious about that because I, for one, am not a, a wonderful test taker. So I had anxiety about that. Um, also prep for it early if they need it. So the GRE is something you would really want to not be worried about because applications in themselves are dogs. Like you, you don't want to be worried about taking a test, prepping for it many, many times. Um, go ahead and see the first time you can take it, see where you land and then retake it, um, as necessary. Um, because the application process comes with so many more layers that I think require I think more of your energy, like the personal statement and the recommendations. Um, next slide, please. Letters of rec. This is also a very, very important part of your application. Um, you guys are in a good position right now. You're still in undergrad. Some of you are postbacks. So um, really make those, you know, impressionable relationships with professors, whether it's um, a professor from undergrad or, you know, a PI or a mentor that you're working with now. If you know that you want to apply for programs or really just PhD programs in general, go ahead and put that little nugget in their ear, you know, um, let them know that you're, you're willing to grow, you're willing to learn from them and make a sort of um, lasting relationship with them so they can write you a very strong letter. Um, and I say strong letter because a lot of people can write you a letter, but um, it it won't it it doesn't have to be strong. So when you request a letter of recommendation, ask them. You know, for one, are you comfortable writing a strong one for me? But also, when is the timeline you would like me to have all my materials to you? Because gen generally, with uh, grad school um, apps, you do apply for a lot of um, locations. So give them ample time to write your letter. Um, one thing that has been helpful was um, putting together the, an entire packet for them. So your CV, your personal statement, the list of programs you need, and all of the um, programs deadlines. And again, that's this is pretty common sense, but be appreciative and nice. So when they, you know, people don't have to write a letter for you. So once they are done, you know, you don't have to buy them no Chick-fil-A or anything like that, but, you know, um, a thank you card or a nice little letter will, will do just fine. Personal statement. So these are really important. And what I will say, I feel like you all are, because you've come here, you kind of have a general sense of where you may land. Um, and so go ahead and start looking at the programs and what they require for each personal statement. Some of them are longer than others. Some of them only give you one page. Um, max, and while that may be a relief to some of you, um, one page is not, you know, you can't really get all of yourself on one page. So what I would, uh, recommend is go ahead and start drafting the personal statement, um, 
let's say, for example, one of you said um, the cycle 2024. So that's August. That will be this year, August for the 2024 cycle. Really in May, go ahead and start drafting it. You want to at least have three, um, three people looking over it. I feel like if it's more than three, that's too many eyes on it and it's too many suggestions. So, but three is a good solid number. Um, and from May up until let's say set October, October, have it uh, solidified by then. Depend. So, if your due date is December first, by October you want to be very comfortable about your personal statement. The last thing you want to be like brushing it up. You don't want to be writing it. Because um, you want to go through as many um, drafts as possible to make it as strong as it can be. Um, again, with personal statements, it's also a game. So um, I can also, we can, well, I'm comfortable sharing um, one of mine with you. The research interest is very important, but also tailoring it to the specific mentor. So while you may have specific interests that can apply to all mentors, some mentors are very, very specific in what they study. Um, this also goes back to the fit of the mentor. So reading up on them and knowing what they pu what they're publishing, what are they currently doing in their lab is also important. Um, and I think too, like looking up what they're doing will tell you if you will be um, happy with them. That so that also goes into that as well. Um, again, with personal statements, I know that we are. You know, some people are very good about being, um, what is the word, humble in a sense. However, applying for PhD programs is not the time to do that. So, um, you can exude a lot of confidence. However, this is where you pull out all of the all the stops. You need to really sell yourself in a way that anyone reading you on paper, because they haven't met you with your personality, reading you on paper will be like, oh my goodness. This is a wonderful person. I really want them in my lab. So by all means, I think um, because I had that problem too, not being, not selling myself enough. I think the the reasoning behind it going between uh, from many people's hands, helping you and mentors, it will help highlight those strengths a little bit better. Um, and last thing, um, <laughs> personal information you share. I know this is a tricky one, um, and a lot of us are really, um, I will say, be very intentional about what you're sharing. So if you are sharing personal information, how is it related to your story, and how is that story coming across for you to get into grad school? What are you doing with that story? Um, if it is emphasizing your reasoning for coming into the field or you choosing your research interests, by all means, you know, do that, give them a little sprinkle. Um, however, they don't really need to, you don't know why you fell off your bike at eight years old. Um, that, that's just not necessary. Um, so be very intentional about that. Um, next slide, please. They also don't want to know, right? Like your most traumatic experience is not the time. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, talk about any personal experiences that you have in psychopathology or with psychopathology, right? Like we, we want to talk about why your interests are personally important to you, um, but not necessarily divulge that sensitive personal information. Yeah, 
And as far as the CV, um, you will see a, a, you know, a lot of CVs that are are very different. Um, but most of them will have the same information on them, your contact, your educational background, things that you're proud of. So presentations, pubs, awards, all of these are what you did in undergrad, um, post-bacs. And when you're applying to school, a good number of things are going to be from your undergrad career because that's you're fresh out, um, even as a post-bac. Um, your awards and such are all going to be from undergrad. Um, I will say for PhD program, they have been getting very competitive um, lately. So you will see a lot of applicants um, coming in with research and clinical experience. Um, while I have my own opinions on that, I do think that at very least getting research experience is beneficial and important um, for you. And it also will look very good on your CV to make it stronger. Um, work experience. Um, I'm not sure exactly, you know, because I know that when you're doing postbacs or research experience that is volunteering, um, some of us are not able to to do that, and I'm very aware of that. So um, it is also important for you to highlight your work experience if they are noting that you know you worked a job while you were an undergrad. That's something that is not taken slightly um, because a lot of people don't have that privilege to just do a postbac and and not be paid. For, for just exposure, right? Um, your academic skills, professional memberships, and leadership roles. One thing about the leadership throughout all of your CV, you want to make sure that whatever you're doing, let people know that you are leading or facilitating something in, in some capacity. Um, so using very strong words such as um, uh, facilitated or led sessions, or co-facilitated, um, those are things that really stand out to people uh, when you're applying for school. Um, these are just some example CVs of Dom, Dominique and I's. Um, granted, your CV is way longer than a resume, so it is definitely not one page. Um, you will typically see them like longer than six plus pages. Some people have 20, 30. It really goes on the more experience you gain. And and while I, you know, while you're in the younger stages, you will not have, you know, six, seven pages worth of stuff. And that's okay. Like that's that's totally fine. Um, but as you go through the program, you'll see that it starts building up. But I we did um include this example because you'll kind of see the differences in how pe uh, things are laid out for you. Whereas Dominique has education that she goes straight into honors and awards. On the right, I have my education, my research interests, and grant funding from the lab, and then I start into my publications. So there's really no right or wrong way to do a CV as long as you are truly, you know, also documenting all the things that you're doing. Um yeah. Can I add something to yeah. that, Shanti? So yeah. one thing that I've done or I've recommended to um, undergrads who are like figuring things out is to have two CVs. One where it's like you throw everything you've ever done. Like when you babysat at 15, you have literally everything you've ever done on that CV. Just because after you are in grad school, you might need to edit it and a program may want like one page or a fellowship may want two pages and you need to just edit it and tailor it but you have that one default where it's just literally everything you ever 
done, every training you ever went to, every job you ever had, just to, because it's, it's so easy to forget. And once you're in your second, third year of grad school, I don't remember what I did in undergrad, but I can go back to that old CV, that long CV, and just remind myself and tailor as needed, because it really is a document that lives with you throughout your entire academic life. So having to, having that super long one, and then one that you're like, submitting for applications, submitting for um, fellowships has helped me and I've seen it help some of the undergrads that I've advised this to. I wish I did that earlier, but it's okay, we do it now, but yeah. <laughs> I'll also say, right, the order matters as well. So I used to have two different versions um, when I was in the application process. So if they emphasize clinical work, I would put that above my research. And I have another one that was research first and then clinical work. Um, and that was through when I was applying to faculty, right? Some jobs are more applied and I would put those clinical. So when I applied to UGA, I applied to direct the clinic. So I put my clinical stuff first. They called me back, Dominique, <laughs> and made me do another job talk, right? So that is to say, um, it is the way that you package and sell your experiences that show the type of position that you can get. So if you're in a scientist practitioner, or if you're applying for a scientist practitioner program, put that research up top. Okay, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about funding your educational, uh, your education from grad school, getting into grad school to once you're in grad school, what that looks like. Um, I think it's fair to assume if you don't already know when you're a grad student, like Aisha said earlier, you're broke for five to six years, like they pay us very little money. Um, but I think it's really important just to think about and know what you're getting into with the different degrees, because it may be that a clinical psych degree is not exactly what you want and what you need, but you go for a master's and you don't realize that it's going to cost you. So master's degrees um, are typically funded by yourself. So you're, you may be getting out loans, you may be using your savings. I've met people who have had a full-time job while also doing their master's degrees. Um, it's definitely tiring because once you're in a graduate program, whether it be a master's, PhD, PsyD, et cetera, the work is a lot. It is double, triple of what you're doing in undergrad. It's longer hours and it just takes a bigger toll on you than what undergrad typically does. Um, and I say that understanding also that everyone's undergrad is very different, um, but it is grad school is hard y'all. It's a lot. So thinking about how am I going to fund this degree by myself? You may end up thinking that loans are the better options, but there are also lots of different fellowships and scholarships that you can apply to. And I'll talk to about those in a little bit. Um, master's degrees that are research focused. Again, those are going to be self funded. So loans or, um your own paycheck, et cetera. PsyD degrees also are another funded pro, um, funded degree. I recently learned though of a friend who applied to a PsyD, got is I think a year away from finishing her PsyD degree. But what she ended up doing was she made connections with the military and essentially what's happening, and I don't know all the details, but I can look into this if anyone is interested where she essentially has signed on to be a psychologist with a PsyD degree for the Navy for X amount of years, and they're covering the cost of her PsyD degree. So these are things to kind of look into as well that can help you with your funding. Um, 
for PhDs, clinical focused and for PhD um, research folk. Well, let me say that again for clinical focus. Most offer some sort of stipend and most offer some sort of tuition remission. So they're covering your tuition and there are other ways to get other funding. So again, those fellowships, scholarships, etc. PhD research focus, and that can be a clinical PhD, developmental PhD, um, et cetera, research PhD. Those are typically gonna be funded through your university. So the way that works is the university is essentially seeing you as an employee of them and you're just getting a degree on the along the way because you're gonna be providing a typically a TA ship. So that means you're a TA for a class. That can vary a lot in what that looks like. There are some TA positions where the professor just wants you to take attendance and grade the tests, and that's super easy. I've seen other TA positions where professors want you to be at every class, take notes, host study sessions, and do all of this extra work. Um, that can take away from your, re your research work, from your own personal life. So you need to know what that's gonna look like once you start that TA position. And there's also research assistantships. So with a research assistantship as a grad student in a PhD program, typically that means you're running studies for your PI, for your advisor. You are running studies for yourself as well, because these are gonna influence, or typically they, they directly influence your thesis, your comps, your dissertation, et cetera. Um, you can also be working as um, a lab tech in, I know some friends who are doing psych degrees, but they're more bio-focused. So they're doing lab tech work in that area as a research assistant. A research assistant, but research assistantship, I think, has a benefit in that it also provides you the opportunity to work on more papers, work on more projects, work on more presentations, and also often do a lot of mentoring work with undergrads in those labs. Um, so that's another opportunity where you're learning mentoring skills, learning how to do um, projects where you're kind of the senior person and the undergrad is the first author or the person leading the projects. So definitely works in both ways. Um, and as again, with these, there's also fellowships and scholarships that go on with all of them. Can we go to the next slide, please? Um, so I kind of already covered the first one. So research assistantships and teaching assist assistantships, but university fellowships. Um, yeah, so university fellowships, those are going to be fellowships and recent funding opportunities within your university. So here at um, UGA, what we have, um, we have one program that's called the Osborne Fellowship. Typically, what that looks like is it will fund your entire first and potentially even second year where it's covering your tuition and giving you a stipend. That basically means you're getting a monthly paycheck and um, you can kind of argue to like, can we raise this money? In some instances, I think it's always worth shooting your shot and just asking, like, can this be increased in any way? Can hours be flex um, flexible or fluctuate so that we can increase my stipend? It works in some instances and in others it doesn't, but again, if you don't ask, you're not gonna know. And then there are also external fellowships. So external fellowships is money that's coming outside of the university. Um, but we're gonna talk about some external fellowships, but I think it's also important to ask whoever is the coordinator of your department of, the, of your program, if there are external fellowships that are 
housed within the university. So I think a lot of us, um, if you're here in Georgia, you've likely heard of Goizueta. Um, so Goizueta fellowships are an external fellowship. However, they are housed within different universities. So UGA has an external Goizueta fellowship, but it's distributed within the university. It's a weird, tricky thing. Um, they typically email you about it once a year and let you know, hey, this is coming up. But there are other programs that are not as good at emailing about these opportunities, and it's worth asking around, asking your PI, also asking senior um, faculty who have been there a long time and have seen these fellowships come in and out and might be able to let you know about them. Um, okay, could we go to the next slide, please? The first fellowship we want to talk about is the Ford Foundation Fellowship. Unfortunately, Ford Foundation has decided to close their doors after many, many years. Um, but I think that the information that is offered through their website is still pretty valuable to using if you're applying to other fellowships. They have a really clear guideline of what your application should look like. And as a person who has applied to a ton of these things, the Ford Fellowship um, guidelines have been pretty consistent and helpful in thinking about how to apply to other programs. Um, Ford Fellowship was one of the ones that really like every student wanted because it offered a lot of money. Um, and this was officially, I think they closed their cycle for the very last time. Yeah, I'm getting nods from Ashanti. Yeah, super sad. I'm out here hoping that someone will be like, we need to bring Ford, Ford back and have more opportunities. If you're somebody who is definitely on the academic train and this is the house you wanna stay in, I think it's worth having your eye on the Ford Foundation Fellowship, whether you're a grad student, a research assistant, or even a PI, because Ford does have a history of funding um, marginalized students and marginalized researchers. And I think that it's likely that they may bring something back maybe not for grad students, but maybe at another level where it's maybe just like research projects and things like that. So something to kind of have in your back burner of knowledge that this is a thing that has existed and just be aware of it because never know, they may, fingers crossed, they make a comeback. Um, can we go to the next slide, please? The APA Minority Fellowship Program, they offer a pre-doctoral fellowship, which basically means that they're covering your three years of support before you reach your PhD. So before you're finally done with the PhD. This um, term pre-doctoral fellowship or pre-doctoral scholarship is something that you wanna be aware of with different fellowships and scholarships and funding opportunities in general. Whenever you see pre-doctoral, that means that it's your first two to three years of support and it's before you complete the PhD. Um, there may be some instances where it says pre-doctoral and it means that you cannot have completed your comprehensive exams or you're not ABD. ABD means all but dissertation. So it's really supporting your beginning training. Um, the APA Minority Fellowship Program with their pre-doctoral fellowship, they're offering mentoring opportunity, travel support, so they're helping you fund your travel training opportunities and potential dissertation of, uh, support. In that by dissertation support, I'm meaning that there are instances where you can apply for the pre-doctoral fellowship and then apply for the postdoctoral fellowship as well. And that's gonna help you after the dissertation. So I kind of already explained what postdoc fellowship means. That means that after you've completed the um, 
dissertation and you have that PhD in your hand and you're feeling amazing, you're going to go on to a postdoc or you're figuring out what you're doing in that time, they're going to fund you for the research that you're going to be doing, mentoring opportunities, funding your travel as well. Um, next slide, please. And typically you go to the location of that postdoc. So pre-doc, you stay where you are. Postdoc, you go to another institution. Yes. And there's a bump with each of these. So, right, when I say a bump, I mean uh, grad students, y'all are at $0, like 19K or something. Postdoc, they are mandated by the government. So those are around 32 to 35K. So still poverty, but right, you're starting to <laughs> make these um, incremental advances, I would say. Exactly. And that postdocs are typically for um, specialized training in the transition to whatever your next step is. Yeah. The SREB fellowship, this is one that is specific to the southern states. Um, and I am not able to remember exactly what they define as the southern states. I feel like there's one or two states that are kind of like, mm, is that the south? I don't know. Check their website. And essentially, you do, they also offer two programs. So the pre-doctoral fellowship, again, that's before the PhD. It's a really great program if you're able to get it. It comes with $20,000 for three for three years, tuition expenses, conference travel. They have a yearly conference where they bring everyone out. You share what you've been doing. You have mentoring opportunities as well. And for the pre-doctoral fellowship, if you are applying, they really emphasize the teaching. So you can be a clinical psychology student, but in your application, you want to emphasize that you want to give back to your community as a professor into your communities in different ways and really emphasize that piece of your academic journey. Their postdoctoral fellowship, again, after the PhD, it's about a year of support, same amount of money. They're covering your tuition expenses and covering you with helping with research for your professional development. Um, I think SREB is a really great program. If you're able to get into it, it's very competitive, but it's amazing. Everyone that I know who has been able to be an SREB fellow, okay, yes, what? has a huge group of support from one another. I absolutely think it's a great program. You have to show some form of commitment to teaching in a Southern state. Um, but that could just be, I'm from Georgia. Right, there's really no way to show that it's just a, a verbal commitment. Um, but yeah, SREB is great in terms of mentorship, support, and just guidance and direction. It's it's very similar to pipeline programs. Um, yeah. but in this case, you're already in your graduate program, but they they provide those same resources and support. These are for mar minoritized and marginalized groups as well. Yes. The next one is the APA Summer Undergraduate Psychology Experience and Research. Um, this is a program that is specifically for undergrads. And Ashanti, I think you have more experience with this one, do you? Yeah, I can uh, kind of speak more to it, Dominique. Um, mm -hmm. I personally didn't have experience with it, but I do know some people that have applied for it. Um, and so sad news, the deadline was yesterday, y'all. However, um, oh. This is something to keep on your radar <laughs> for for next year. So essentially what it is, is APA. Um, I feel like I'm saying this and maybe some of you may not know what the APA is. So that's the American Psychological Association. Um, 
But what they will do as an undergrad, they'll pay you a stipend of four thousand dollars, um, and um, a thousand dollars additional to study under a faculty member. Um, and this can be anywhere in the United States of where of what of who they have specifically for that program year uh, to study under them and get research experience. Um, I think it's a wonderful opportunity um, for undergrads. Um, they also reimburse you $1,500 up to travel expenses um, when you're there to present um, your research at an APA convention. So not only are you getting paid for this experience, but you're also getting research experience in, um, you know, giving a conference, which is something that grad schools love to look at. And also that you're able to do research in uh, like in a PhD program. Um, it's not undergrad research where, you know, you may just, um, you know, like the projects that they give you guys for busy work um, during the year, but it's actual research that, you know, PIs are conducting and they need more help um, hands on with. Um, another thing that's really great about it is that these mentors that you're probably paired with will, will write you wonderful recommendation letters for grad school. Um, so I do know they offer up to 25 fellowships um, and, and there is an imperative need for underrepresented groups in the psychology field. So if this does apply to you, um, I definitely would check it out. Um, again, you know, the, the deadline was yesterday. However, um, it is something to keep on your radar as well if you're still an undergrad. And with that, there are so many summer undergrad research opportunities that are coming up. A lot of them are virtual. So you again, check out on Twitter for these things too, because they tend to post them there a lot. Um, especially geared to historically underrepresented folks. Um, mm -hmm. I know UGA has one that's in the summer. It's an eight-week program. They don't offer as much funding. I kind of coordinate it, so that's why I'm like, hey, if you're interested, come learn about it. Are you um, talking about McNair? No, the Sura program. Sura, yeah. yeah. UGA has McNair, too, so yeah. Yeah, that's true. Ask around. Anyone, if you're not at Georgia State, because I can tell you we don't have it, but any university other than Georgia State, ask and see if they have a McNair program or a TRIO office, and yes. that should help you. Um, and it sounds like, yeah, Twitter also. Uh, Dominique and Ashanti, what would they do? Like maybe hashtag summer research? I don't know how to search Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I would hashtag summer research. Um, a lot of psychology departments have active Twitter accounts. So like UGA has a pretty active psych department account. So you can follow those if you want to see when they start posting them. And also most of these have them on their website. So if you're like, I know I want to go to this university or there's this one research that I'm really interested at this one place, you can just poke around and ask, do y'all have this? You can email folks and check on their Twitter accounts too, but hashtags, typing in just keywords, all of that will be helpful. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Dr. Mesker, Ashanti, and Dominique definitely shared some great expertise with us. We hope that you found it valuable and inspiring. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and share this episode with others who you think could benefit from it. Until next time, take care. Bye, guys.